1: All right, well, we work. Uh, they're lawyers, probably working overtime these days, trying to figure out how to wrangle this S1 into something that'll be a little more appealing to investors. Also, working overtime all the time is Jillian Tan, senior reporter at Bloomberg. She's been covering We Work among the many things on her plate so closely. Uh, she joins us in our interactive broker studio. David Snyder joins us on the phone. He's the founder and CEO of Harness Wealth. He's here in New York City as well. So, Jillian, I want to start with you because these are some interesting moves and and some machinations that we don't necessarily normally see. But that's because this is an S1 that we've never really seen before (laughs) in a lot of ways, right?
2: Yeah, I guess it's because this is a a prospectus that we've... The first version of the prospectus a month ago is one that we had never seen. And maybe if they had baked all of these changes into the beginning... To, to begin with, the reception wouldn't have been so frosty from the investor universe. Well, and I wonder if it would have changed the valuation exactly. So uh, we all know SoftBank invested earlier this year at a forty-seven billion dollar valuation. We all know the stock, uh, the sorry, the company went out, you know, hoping for as much as sixty-five billion, and today we reported it could be as low as twelve. And um. Reuters reported as low as ten.
0: All right. So David Snyder, come on in on this. Founder, CEO of Harness Wealth, uh, a wealth management firm. Um, How do you see this uh, in terms of what rework the reception it's gotten, and some of the changes it's kind of had to scramble to do as it looks to go public?
3: Ultimately, it has a few challenges. I think, one, it's a category-defining business. And so lots of public market investors see IWG a public company in the co-working space and say, well, gosh, that trades at a really low multiple. How do we get comfortable with a very different type of multiple here? I think the business certainly justifies the premium given the way that it's grown historically, the speed at which it's filled facilities. But I think the challenge of a business that hasn't really clearly been able to articulate its long-term competitive advantage coupled with Some real corporate governance challenges, which I think was sort of the – ultimately the icing on the cake for investors in terms of just being too sweet to stomach um, is where they've focused, I think, recently in trying to get as much value as they can but ultimately still be in a place that the public market – accepts the business structurally, um, since it does have a
1: lot of attractive attributes. Well, David, I'm so glad you brought up the corporate governance piece, because, Jillian, that's really at the crux of a lot of this. And a lot of it centers around Adam Newman and the various, uh, kindly, roles and and, uh, and irons he has in the fire, as it were. Tell us what it was and, and what it may be now and the changes that they're making.
2: Yeah, so it's pretty dramatic that a company will now have a lead independent director by the end of the year. Interestingly, it didn't have one beforehand. Uh, The high vote stock, which is Adam Newman's votes per share was up to 20 votes from 10 votes last year. It's now gone back to 10 and they've added a provision. If he is mentally incapacitated or dies, that'll sunset and automatically decrease to one vote per share. Um, Other things they're going to have, make sure the board is a majority of independent directors and That no member of Adam's family will sit on the board. And also, that board will decide who is the next CEO, which was previously only going to be two directors and his wife.
1: I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I have to say.
0: Just come on. I know. That's shocking. Right. Like, you're going to go public, you're going to play with the big boys. And the big gals, right, as a publicly held company, and yet you're still thinking about doing that.
1: Well, big gals, I mean, up until recently, there were no gals <laughs> yeah, on, on yeah. this right. board, right? Exactly. So now there's lost one.
0: Wednesday. Right. Well, so David Snyder, you, okay, so if we clean all of this, because you mentioned uh, earlier that there are attractive attributes to this business. So if we clean up all of this, does it look like a good business? Is it ready to go public? Is it a company then ultimately investors should be interested in?
3: I think there are a lot of interesting similarities to Uber in a sense that both are businesses created in the last 10 years really defining an old service but in a very new way but in the same way that that Uber has stumbled a little bit I think because of the competitive challenges in the market and ambiguity about what its path to profitability is I think there's a similar story here I mean they continue to to roughly double the revenue at WeWork, but the expenses are sort of growing in line with that. And so I think investors ought to be excited about the speed that they can fill specific new facilities that they're opening and sort of demonstrate a broader market. But ultimately, you want to be demonstrating increasing operating leverage where you can grow Top line faster than the losses
1: for the business. Oh, Jillian, last question to you. Only about 30 seconds left. What's next here? Where are they in the process?
2: So, we understand they're going to launch as soon as Monday, which means they're going to have one on one meetings and sort of lunches across the country, maybe internationally, and sort of gain that investor reception to the changes and maybe obtain a new valuation. We'll see.
1: Wow. All right. Well, we know you will be all over it. Jillian Tan, senior reporter for Bloomberg, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Follow her on Twitter, at Jillian Tan, with a G, and you will get the latest and greatest on WeWork, private equity, real estate, tennis when it's in season as well. Yes,
0: indeed. And I'm just thinking about all the time we spent with business schools, Um, certainly this week at Columbia and really over the last year, and I think about how real life, in terms of what's going on in the business world, new listings, like teaching such great lessons uh, in real time.
1: Our thanks to David Snyder as well, founder and CEO of Harness Wealth. All Rabel
0: splits two.
1: He never gets tired, I'm guessing, of hearing the replay of his first goal scored in the league that he created. Paul Rabel, back with us, co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Premier Lacrosse League, back in here in New York, you moved out to L.A. to create all of this, but New York's kind of a home away from home.
4: I know you're from Baltimore originally. But yes, and thank you for having me. It's
1: great to have you. Yeah. Uh, a couple big games tomorrow night, semifinals, finals next weekend. There's a lot that we could talk about, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about, at this point in the season, the media piece has been a big success for you guys. I was reading an interview that you did this morning about the deal with NBC – Help us understand why that worked the way it did, because it surprised you guys on the upside.
4: Sure, sure. NBC's been a fantastic partner, and even that play-in was Brendan Burke, and, and they participated from the production on the Linear Front to our OTT RevShare partnership with NBC Gold Pass to Talent, where Sam Flood shipped in and brought us Paul Burmeister, who many people know from the Olympics and Notre Dame football, to Brendan Burke, who's their up-and-coming Uh, New York Islanders play-by-play caller and uh, soon-to-be probably big-time NHL playoff caller. So having that type of talent, we added Ryan Boyle, uh, brings the broadcast to life. Mm -hmm. And uh, to your question, sports are are really about media. Very few people, and in fact, probably close to 1% of sports fans actually attend games live. You know, we're talking about billions of sports fans all over the world are consuming your core sports and now you know, new sports like lacrosse. And so when you think about how are we distributing ourselves, all these mediums are important to us, not just linear, not just OTT, but social and digital as well.
0: Is that what has surprised you kind of in this first year out? I'm curious, now that you're, you know, well in to the season, what has kind of surprised you? Yeah,
4: I think a lot of people are are still very curious around sports consumption via linear broadcast. and, And it's become more and more popular Amidst a lot of cord cutting is what we see. Mm -hmm. But when you say more and more popular over the last decade alone, live television viewership has flipped from 20% being sports to now that was in 2009. And now in 2019, 80% of network television viewed live is sports. So we saw the upfronts, presentations, and CPMS are now increasing despite maybe smaller viewership numbers. But when you can get someone to watch a broadcast for 63 minutes, which is our average watch time, wow. that's more valuable right. to the to to the networks and the ad partners than consuming a piece of content for an impression on six seconds. Yeah. All right. You know. So
1: Scott Soschnick is here, host of the Business of Sports podcast. Uh, heard here. On Bloomberg Radio as well you were the first candidly to to write about all of this you know the business of sports better than anyone I'm gonna with no shade to your colleagues but what do you make of all this.
4: I think I do know it better than them. That's
5: okay. And sure. the first States report, the it's
4: okay. The first report widely on the cross, but, and myself, Scott, and I yeah, go but, back almost before 10
5: years. Paul was wow. taking part in fashion shows in New York. when he had
4: his, his comes red hard-hitter. bull
5: hat tugged down low. That that's the Paul Rabel yes. I know this guy. I who doesn't even tell me he's in the building nowadays. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what he's become. But when you start your own league, you do all right. That's fine. I'm always struck by the fact that what you're doing is considered revolutionary. This in-game interviews. Yeah. I mean this is the thing every sports league should be doing. Like you said, this is about scale. You yeah. can have zero people in your buildings, but if you can reach the rest of the world, I mean that's a finite number. Do the do the do the math. Number of dates, number of seats in the arenas, that's a finite number, but you can scale by reaching people on their iPads and, and, their, tel- and their telephones. That's what you're looking to do, and that's sort of the imagination that, that you're kickstarting.
4: No doubt. Scale comes from your distribution strategy on social and digital, but you can only hit that level of scale if you maintain the holy grail on linear. So you can't have all of these social clips where we're innovating in the broadcast, communicating from our talent down to the players live on field when they score a goal through the same helmet technology using the NFL. You can't have that expound into millions of views on social without the 48 minute game and the two hour block on linear. So you got to capitalize on linear, then be sophisticated and fast enough to get that content out immediately through social, share it through the right platforms, have the right information influencers get behind it. And that's when you see real virality. And that's what a sport like lacrosse can really benefit from. What's the next step
1: on the media side? What do we look forward to
4: in 2020? Well, to a couple of those clips that you had mentioned, one of them is Trevor Baptiste in-game wins a face-off while we were communicating with him before the draw from the booth. He goes down and scores. They ask him what the difference was between that face-off and the one preceding it, and he said, speed. And he looked directly in the camera like this guy was uh, you know, a production savant <laughs> and knew where to look in a packed house. Uh, so that was submitted for an Emmy nomination, and That's we have great. a few other Emmy nominations that we've submitted on behalf of, of NBC, so we're really excited. But continue the innovation... On the media and broadcast side, we're going to, of course, resource areas within our media team, which is a 15-person full-time team of producers, editors, graphic designers, illustrators, coordinating producers, managers of content. We view it as a combination of production and programming, so what we're creating, how we're distributing it. Um, And then the big areas of, of a pro league, when you look at signals of success, will there be expansion? Uh, what locations are we going to go to that we went to in 2019 and 2020? Are we going to go to new markets? Right. And those are stuff that we're talking about now.
0: Um, thank you so much. Always love coming in. we got to wrap up.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Good luck for the weekend. All right, we are checking the inside of generics, man. This is the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week magazine about a quality control nightmare that's underway in the pharmaceutical industry, specifically with generics. And what's interesting is it relates to some other news that we got today about a carcinogen in Zantac and generics triggering investigations by uh, the FDA and the European Union. This is exactly what our Bloomberg News health policy reporter, Anna Edney, has been writing about. She's part of the team that wrote this week cover story uh, in the magazine. She joins us from Washington, D.C., along with David Light, founder and CEO at ValueShore on the phone from New Haven, Connecticut. David, I do want to start with you because you alerted the FDA. Tell us exactly what you did.
5: So at ValueShore, we have a pharmacy that's attached to an analytical laboratory. So we test every single batch of every single medication for a variety of issues. And certainly one of those is carcinogens and medications that absolutely shouldn't be there. So using these FDA-recommended protocols, uh, we originally detected millions of nanograms of NDMA in all products of, of Zantac and Renity.
0: And so, Anna,
1: give us some context here because – go ahead, sir.
0: Well, an NDMA, Anna, come on in on that because that is at the center of your story. That's the carcinogen we're talking about.
6: Right, and DMA is the um, probable carcinogen that has also been found in blood pressure pills that were recalled starting last year. It was a year-long recall, really still something that's going on, and this was a really popular blood pressure pill that millions of Americans and millions all over the world take, and so now this NDMA is also showing up Uh, in Zantac and its generics. And um, the FDA is trying to find out if that might be harmful to patients who use it.
1: So David, I have to ask you, and we talked a little bit about this with Anna when her story came out, but how did this happen? You know, how does this sort of get into the system in such a way that this feels like a, a real live health hazard for
5: people? The the issue with the Valsartan and the blood pressure medications uh, seem to have been just dirty manufacturing pra- practices, uh, changing over of solvents, uh, using solvents that themselves were known carcinogens um, or probable carcinogens. Uh, however, what seems to be the case, and certainly what we at Valisher uh, believe is happening with Zantac and ranitidine, is it's actually an inherent problem of the drug itself. So both the N and the DMA components of NDMA are actually present on the drug um, in, uh, in Zantac and, and the drug reninidine. And so uh, our data and actually uh, quite a bit of data from other researchers like at Stanford University um, seems to point pretty strongly that this is actually an inherent problem of the drug itself potentially reacting with itself or reacting with other components in your stomach like nitrite. if you look at a hot dog uh, nutrition label, you'll see nitrite on there. And uh, just the combination of nitrite and ranitidine uh, could be very straightforwardly reacting and forming hundreds of thousands of nanograms of NDMA and potentially even millions. Uh, Just a quick note on on the Stanford study that published in 2016 is that they were finding over 40,000 nanograms of NDMA in the urine of individuals that had ingested uh, Zantac, just one pill of Zantac. And uh, very little of NDMA actually makes it into the urine, uh, usually less than 1%. So it strongly points to, again, potentially millions of nanograms of NDMA being created in the human body from taking even a single pill of Santec or Renudine.
0: Anna, I want to bring you back in because you, you know, so rightly report in the cover story this week and in your story that's on the terminal today about, you know, here we have, we live in this world increasingly of globalization, right? And the global supply chain, chain, excuse me, global supply chain of drugs, drug ingredients and factory processes. I mean, this is the reality of life. And unfortunately, sometimes oversight uh, and the regulatory oversight kind of gets lost in the process.
6: Yeah, that's exactly right. The, a lot of, um, drugs in their active ingredients are made in China and India, which is something we pointed out in the, the cover story, um, on, that looked really closely at the blood pressure pills with Zantac, um, at least for the brand name Sanofi, which is the company that makes it, told me that they manufacture it in Mexico. They get their active ingredients for it from Spain, Um, and so, you know, these are all places that the FDA can go and investigate and can do inspections at, you know, plants and factories that make drugs out there. But um, what I what we found in our reporting was that's not always being done. Um, those numbers for surveillance inspections were going down the last couple of years, even as more generics are coming to market to try to help with drug prices.
1: And so, David, as you look at the reaction here and you think about Anna's reporting and a lot of the work that you guys have done, does it feel like people are more on this at this point? Is more attention being paid? Is there potential further action ahead?
5: There's definitely a lot of visibility, uh, thanks to reporting of, of Anna and Bloomberg and, and uh, increasing number of outlets that are paying close attention to these problems. Um, and I think as more people look, uh, we're, we're going to find more. I mean, we at Valisher, we're, we're rejecting over 10 percent of the batches we analyze these days. Um, and we, we honestly we have more problems that we're finding, then we have resources to fully investigate. Um, so uh, absolutely believe that this is a, a big inherent problem of, of, of this industry. Um, we, we don't see a whole lot of others doing much in the industry uh, about this, and we certainly hope right. uh, that more will get done. We're, we're the only pharmacy we're aware of that uh, is actually chemically testing every single mm. batch of medication that, that is actually coming through. Um, so, uh, definitely need to do more chemical testing as a whole. You know, the, the American College of Cardiology did, did a resolution recently, uh, calling for more chemical testing. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of doctors, uh, that have been concerned about this, um, and, uh, it. Very happy about the increased visibility, David. But, wait, yeah, I, I have to ask. Yeah, I have to
0: ask you because you guys filed that petition with the FDA today, asking the agency to recall Zantac and its generics that contain NDMA. The FDA says those levels are low. You guys say they're excessive. You think the FDA FDA is wrong and that they really need to do that recall because of the potential for the amount of uh, patients that could be uh, impacted. Just got about twenty five seconds.
5: Yeah, so it really depends on how you test it, and if you test it in the conditions of the human stomach, as Stanford University paper also showed, the levels are extremely high, and Mm. we feel that it should be recalled entirely.
0: Almost 25 million prescriptions for Zantac and its generics um, were written in 2018, according to our data. So um, a story we're going to be, continue to watching. Check out also the cover of the magazine uh, this week because it's all about this. Anna Edney, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from our bureau in Washington, D.C. David Light, founder and CEO at ValueSure, on the phone from Connecticut. This is Bloomberg.
6: Once you get started.
0: There is so much going on in the startup world. We certainly have seen the IPO world open up this year. I just think this week alone, Peloton, WeWork, uh, talking about so many new issues or potential new issues. Here with what he's seeing when it comes to emerging companies, Eric Martineau-Fortin is founder and managing partner at White Star Capital. Uh, He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, Been around the world, but he's based back in New York. Nice to have you here.
7: Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me uh, at uh, Bloomberg.
0: Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing from your vantage point.
7: Um, where, I mean, White Star is a, um, international multi-stage investment platform in technology. We do Siri A, B investment, 5 to 15 million dollar initial investment, uh, looking at things globally. So when we created this firm in 2014-15 the, the objective was to was to say that we can create large international firm from everywhere uh, not only in the valley so we're not we're not saying we're, we should not invest in the valley, we're saying that you can do it you don't have to move to the valley and this is in New York and London and Paris and, and Toronto and, and Tokyo and, and, and and Hong Kong where we have offices that you can do this so we've built a team of 25 people uh, we invest in consumer and enterprise technology companies and um, we've been having some some great success doing doing this outside the valley
1: and tell us about that like where are you sort of hunting for for companies even even more specifically are there areas that you feel like are sort of riper for disruption I think about a dollar shave club which I think mm-hmm. is uh, has been in your portfolio are they sort of consumer disruptors, uh, as it were? How are you sort of narrowing the field? Uh, we're looking at disruption. Dollar
7: Shave Club, which was one of our original company in 2012, 13, uh, was a perfect example of this. They were one of the first one to use videos to to market their yeah. their uh, their product, and they did it extremely well. But we also have Freshly in New York. Uh, I think Freshly is doing this in food tech. They're doing a fantastic job at at this. Uh, we have in the e-scooter mobility a competitor to Lyman Bird, the leading firm in Europe that we have in Berlin called mm-hmm. Tier Mobility, doing extremely well. And each time they're they're doing it trying to disrupt uh, traditional industries uh, using technologies, not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but it's just distributing your product and and and, and finding a more compelling proposal for consumer or enterprise to uh, to deliver their services into and to and to, uh, and to just do things differently.
0: Eric, what was your most recent investment?
7: Uh, most recent investment that we announced was uh, one in a company in Berlin that I just mentioned, Tier Mobility. Uh, we also had in June uh, the the great success of one of our French companies, a company called Miro, which is a marketplace for professional photograph. That was the largest right. Series C in France ever done. It was a $230 million Series C. Um, I think it shows that our model work well, uh, yes, New York is a fantastic place. we believe in it there 's eight billion of investment that were done last year, but you have five billion in London and you have three billion in france and 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 this is excluding Scandinavia and the rest of the world. so you can look at things globally and that was the last one we announced but there's a there 's one coming in new York, and i i can 't wait to talk about it
1: so when you think
0: about so we call it great teas, yeah
7: it 's great teas, <laughs> very good
1: you be a good broadcaster yeah. uh, when you think about. Uh, you know life outside the valley as mm-hmm. carol mentioned in the intro you've lived all around the world you know new york i think you provided some research actually has more people working in the tech sector certainly the startup startups tech sector even than silicon valley why is that what is it that is happening that's drawing people maybe away from the the traditional centers
7: i, I started investing in new york as a super angel in 2008 9 and i'm a former investment banker so i was advising client in technology and and i was seeing a gap where the, the the issue was not the talent pool the issue was the lake of capital availability yeah. we didn't have this even at the siri seed a back in those days what led this industry to emerge is that Technology investment, venture capital nowadays, is not just related to inventing the new technology, the new software. This is reinventing the way you distribute things. And New York, when you compare it to the Valley, and and we're a big fan of the Valley, it's not one against the other. But in New York, you have a diversity of talent that is quite spectacular, from Mm -hmm. people in marketing to finance to fantastic engineering school that you have in New York, but in Boston, and Pittsburgh, in a lot of different places, and you no longer have to move on the other side of, 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 of the country. And this is what we found interesting. And if you inject this mix of very talented people, um, very international, coming from different places, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian, my wife is French, my kids are American, and we live in England over the, over the summer. So this is what you have in New York. And that talent pool, if you inject them with capital, I think you can you can just win.
0: Just very quickly, twenty seconds here. What's the liquidity event for most of these companies? Is it an IPO? Is it being bought out? Oh, that's,
7: that's very interesting because things are evolving. I think the the IPO. Um, I've heard you talked about uh, some of the big one coming uh, is one route, but it, it's now they possible for the two, three, four, five billion dollar type of, of investment. Now what we're seeing we're seeing a couple of things. Some of the strategic are coming in at the one billion dollar type of level to. Uh, uh, provide liquidity for us as investors but we're seeing a very strong secondary market created by the South Bank of this world and so forth that are the alternative to the IPO and this is a very interesting thing for us in our industry where we're a bit insensitive to price when we come in we come in because we have a great idea we back people but then these guys allow this exit
0: we gotta run thank you so much come back when you want to make that announcement about the uh, next investment Eric Martineau Fortin founder and managing partner of White Star Capital here in our studio you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week I'm Radio. I'm driving in my
6: car. I'll
0: turn
1: on the radio. Hey, how
6: about you let me drive?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you
4: home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive.
6: Just drive, Just
0: drive,
6: baby. It's the question that drives us. drive,
5: Is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn on
1: Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Bill Page here with the senior vice president and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Looking after about $800 million up in Boston. Been around for about a year and a half. He spent a long time at SSGA, a name well-known to a lot of our audience. Bill, great to have you with us here in New York. Thank you very much, Jason. All right, so a very timely conversation, it feels like, because we're about to get into a period where people are going to focus even more on climate, clean energy, new energy. We talk about it a lot, candidly, here as a newsroom, and full disclosure, we got a boss who cares a lot about it, uh, as you know, as well. What's going on in the investable side of this?
8: So the investable side of of clean energy is very scalable. And so if you're an asset owner, you can get get access to clean energy and clean tech across all asset classes, from private equity all the way through to credit. So the bulk of the asset classes that have been getting sort of the love around climate investing the last 10 years have been infrastructure in private equity. And so what I'm here to say is that um, you can have a very strong impact around climate solutions in listed equity. And so we're investing around climate solutions thematically, so nine environmental technology themes. And so um, you were alluding, Jason, to the um, Climate Week, which is coming up the week of the 23rd in New York. And um, when you think about uh, clean tech, the bulk of the asset owners um, and the NGOs have been focused on climate risk but we really need to sort of move the needle to thinking about opportunity investing around the viable technologies that help economies save money, right. grow their economy, right. and do it cleaner.
1: Well, because one of the key themes? It feels like that hasn't gotten as much love. And I remember talking about this several years ago with none other than Al Gore. Is you can make a lot of money, <laughs> you know, sort of sort of doing this. There's a real need for a lot of these companies and investing. Inside them. Give us some examples.
8: Yeah, so that's exactly why we're doing this. Is that um, I co managed this Essex Farm Opportunities Fund and w- with my co manager Rob Ewick, and we, we really believe we're in this because of the fin- long term fe- uh, financial return. And so these secular trends are long tailed and massive, and so we need to scale. And so as we think about it, um, the sectors that we're investing in are nine themes are so doing water. So water treatment, water reuse, potable water. When you think about distributed water, so bringing water to the point source of demand. So instead of building a huge water treatment plant, you're doing it at the point source. I'll give you some examples. We're doing a lot with precision ag, Mm -hmm. um, precision agriculture, efficient transport. So whether it's a truck, car, bus, um, you know, I walked from... Uh, Penn Station up here today, and you know there's now eight to twelve modes of transport in uh, in New York City and in, in Manhattan. So we need to optimize traffic mm. flow, and so that's a key theme for us too. So clean energy is not just solar; it's well beyond that. It's anything that allows you to do less or enable sustainability.
0: One of your holdings is Xylem. I've talked with Patrick Decker a couple of times, uh, you know, but it's interesting because it can be as something as systems put in place to control water flows, right? So they're they're very efficient. So it's not only you know kind of the sexy stuff of wind and solar, which is wonderful as well, but there's a lot of of ways of kind of going into this space uh, from an investment angle.
8: Yeah, and the reason why we define the nine themes is that the themes give us – it's a very inefficient portion of the capital markets and, and listed equity. So we do mostly mid-cap. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of mid-cap industrials. And so the ve- Ford, we can
0: put more money to work too, right? We At can least put, you in- can put a
8: lot of money to work in the listed equity market, exactly. And so Xylem is a key holding for us in the water side. They, they sell into municipalities, commercial industrial facilities. Right. Water is really energy intensive. So as you bring new water technologies to the market, you save the companies that are adopting those technologies money. And so the way we differentiate what we're doing from a sustainability fund is that a sustainability fund is a large-cap company. Like, it could be owning Apple, Google. It could be an an Amazon. It could be a Costco. They're large multinationals. They're buying these technologies because they get a good return on investment. They're all commercially viable. So what we're doing with our fund is buying the stocks of the companies that bring those technologies as a solution to the market. Well, isn't
0: that interesting? Because it plays into the definition of like kind of what is sustainability like you do applaud those companies that are doing things, you know, taking sustainability measures, whether it's, you know, buying services from these kinds of companies, and then you really kind of have to some extent, a pure play
8: exactly and so we call it solutions and yeah, so solutions. so it's, it's so to me clean tech was a you know dirty word in the media for for years but we continue to use it because clean energy is solving really for secular trends globally so it's not just climate it's things like urbanization population density or ambient air quality in cities improving safety is so it clean tech are we so, getting
0: the performance only because more of these bigger companies whether it's an apple or an Amazon uh, are buying these services like there's been a, a shift I feel like in the conversation and the demand for these services it used to be kind of a cool nice thing to do yep, years ago it helps sustainability rating but yep. there really has been a shift where like I feel like more and more folks and companies specifically are all in on this they're all in is that fair
8: Yes, it is, because we've been really emphasizing as we try to convince asset owners to take a look at the solutions that the multinationals are moving, and they have been moving. So they're moving in commercially viable technology. So they moved in LED lighting. They moved in solar arrays. They're now moving in in power storage. And so as they move and adopting these disruptive technologies, it lowers their business risk, lowers their commodity price exposure. So for us, um, as we think about where we are in the cycle right now, and I don't want to get Macro, but as we think about what's happening in the markets now, mid cap has been at a better valuation relative to TARP. The, um, so relative to the, I'm sorry, the FANG um, stocks. And so that's really key right now is that there's been a lot of headwinds um, fundamentally at clean tech. We've come out of three short-term industrial recessions. We've just had a sort of a, a bit of a slowdown, and now we seem to be emerging from that. We'll see what right. happens in the upcoming right. quarterly earnings.
0: Yeah, mid-caps as a universe overall up about 18% this year. Yep. yep.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there. Bill Page, Senior Vice President that's and really Senior Portfolio Manager for Essex Investment Management based up in Boston here with us in New York City in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.